There was a nip in the air as the wind blew out of the northeast as the day dawned. The day was, quote, fair, soft, and spring-like, as it had been for the past week in Washington, D.C. By the end of the day, a new wind would truly be blowing in the town, as Martin Van Buren would be out and William Henry Harrison would be in as the ninth president of the United States of America. We are finally at Harrison's presidency, dear listeners, on this episode of the Harrison Podcast. I am, as always, honored to be your host, Jerry Landry. Whether you're a long-time listener or this is your first time listening, if you know anything about William Henry Harrison, then you likely know how this episode is going to end. Let's not think about that for the moment, however, and instead throw ourselves into the time. Harrison had ousted Andrew Jackson's hand-picked successor, and the Whig Party was set to take the reins of power for the first time. Estimates of how many people had come to Washington to witness the historic transfer of power ranged from 25 to 100,000 people. Thus far, the change had actually been rather cordial. Harrison and his party had gotten into town on February 9th, and soon after his arrival, one of the first calls that he paid was on Van Buren. The two met for half an hour, with Van Buren later returning the courtesy and calling on Harrison at his hotel and bringing his entire cabinet along for the ride. That night, Van Buren had Harrison over for dinner and offered to vacate the White House early so that Harrison could get settled in and rest before taking office. Harrison declined, but was, by all accounts, grateful for the gesture. This level of cordiality between an outgoing and incoming president of different parties at this point was unusual. In the two previous instances where one party was ousting another, 1800 and 1828, not only have I found no record of a meeting after the contest was decided, but the outgoing president in each instance did not even attend the inauguration. If you think that the election of 2016 was bitter, try picturing John Adams, hightailing it and bumping along on a public stagecoach for the long journey back to Massachusetts before dawn on inauguration morning, after spending the last few days filling every vacant judgeship he could find with Federalists. Though it seems that Van Buren didn't go so far as to actually attend the inauguration, he did remain in D.C. for a few days after the election, staying at the home of one of his cabinet members. The inauguration went as inaugurations went, much pomp and circumstance. It is apparently to Harrison that we must give credit to the inaugural parade, as he initiated the process when he rode to the Capitol atop his horse, Old Whitey, amidst a procession that is said to have, quote, extended nearly two miles, a fitting end to his lively campaign. Ironically, it seems like the words of the man who would ultimately serve the majority of the presidential term went unnoticed. Had anyone paid any attention to John Tyler's speech upon taking the oath of office as vice president, they would have seen that he was more akin to John C. Calhoun than Henry Clay. I quote, Here in the Senate are to be found the immediate representatives of the states, by whose sovereign will the government has been spoken into existence. This sentence states Tyler's belief that the federal government's authority derives from the states, not from a direct relationship with the people. Senators, in his view, were, quote, the immediate representatives of the states, and thus ultimate authority lies with the states of the United States, quote, the members of this confederacy. But all eyes on this day were focused on Harrison. As we've discussed the inaugural address at length in episodes 10 and 11, links for which will be provided in the show notes for this episode on the blog in case you missed those episodes, we won't go into the details of it here except to say that, like his campaign speeches, it went on for some time and is, to date, the longest inaugural address ever delivered. As one can imagine, by the time he got back to the White House, Harrison needed to rest for half an hour, quote, while his head and temples were rubbed with alcohol. 
the house quickly filled with well-wishers as at that time there was no fence or security to go through in order to gain entrance to the white house harrison greeted the crowd around three quote, but refrained from shaking hands you might think this is rather odd until you realize that harrison was the first presidential candidate who had actually campaigned with the crowds that he had dealt with he learned quickly how shaking a large number of hands could cause physical pain something that many of his successors including rutherford b hayes nearly forty years later would comment on the crowds to greet and congratulate harrison were large but not just there for altruistic or patriotic reasons as he would quickly learn harrison would get to enjoy a little more fun and revelry with three inaugural evening functions before waking up the next day to the crowd of office seekers as described by Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves, quote, day after day, the White House was jammed with petitioners. Every one had letters. All of Harrison's friends and acquaintances had letters asking that they intercede with the president. This was one of the worst legacies of the Jackson presidency. To the victor go the spoils. Despite spurious attacks by the Federalists when Thomas Jefferson took over in 1801 that he had displaced many Federalist officeholders when, in fact, most retained their positions, Prior to Jackson, appointments to federal offices were made to fill vacancies, not to reward political supporters. Jackson, however, in his revolution, saw rotation of office as both just rewards for hard work given to the campaign, and as a fulfillment of a democratic ideal that the power should belong with the people who now form the majority. As Leonard White describes in his study of the administrative history of the executive branch during the Jacksonian era, quote, rotation was imposed because it was demanded from below, not merely because it was advocated from above. Thus, with the Democrats out and the Whigs in following the 1840 election, it was seen as time to rotate through the offices. The man who had become Harrison's attorney general, John J. Crittenden, predicted in January that Harrison would, upon taking office, quote, bring along with him such a storm as old aeolus could hardly raise and so he did white describes harrison as being quote besieged and taken prisoner in the white house itself by a crowd of office seekers by march fourteenth crittenden would write quote we are laboring along and endeavoring to keep peace among the office seekers but nothing less than a miracle could so multiply our offices and patronage as to enable us to feed the hungry crowd that are pressing upon us Indeed, it got so bad that a visitor to the White House noted on one occasion that, quote, the president wanted to have a meeting of his cabinet, but could not go into a room where he was not pressed by the crowd. This was not just a problem of having to deal with every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wanted a position, but this meant that valuable experience would be lost. It wasn't about who was best for the job, but who wanted it more and who had the better connections. Harrison's Secretary of War John Bell would write in January before taking office that, quote, I'm growing pretty sick already of this thing of office in my own case, and the increasing tide of application from new quarters that daily beats against my ears gives me spasms. In truth, I begin to fear that we are at last, or rather, that our leading politicians in the several states are chiefly swayed by the thirst for power and plunder. Yes, yes, I realize that this sounds quite familiar to my contemporary listeners. This is a problem that has ebbed and flowed in American political history, and now it was the Harrison administration's turn to deal with it. Harrison made it clear that he felt civil service reform should be a priority, and indeed one of his few presidential directives was a step in that direction. 
on march twentieth secretary of state webster at harrison's order issued a circular to all of the executive departments asserting that government employees could not be forced to support the administration's party in elections either through giving of their time or donations while extensive reforms that would last beyond the harrison administration would take working with congress there was time for that in the meantime there were more important problems on hand like the fact that the government was nearly broke well it wasn't broke per se it just couldn't get access to some of its money and couldn't raise enough in the time needed to keep paying the bills for much longer there had already been proposals that a special session of congress be called in order to deal with the nation's economic woes but before deciding on whether to do so harrison had asked his secretary of the treasury thomas ewing to evaluate the government's financial situation in order to determine the immediacy of calling congress back upon receiving ewing's report harrison issued the call for a special session to convene on may thirty first to deal with quote sundry important and weighty matters despite the gravity of other problems facing the administration harrison and his cabinet kept getting drawn back into the problem of patronage from one corner of the nation to another prominent whigs were seeking positions either for themselves or for others but aside from certain key postings it does seem that harrison attempted to take his time to make the best decision possible regarding appointments as noted by historian norma lois peterson quote he meaning harrison wanted efficiency and honesty in government and he visited every department to observe operations he then called for reports detailing the activities and responsibilities of each office and he vowed to protect office holders who were performing their duties well indeed some plum positions including that of u s minister to france will remain in the hands of the democratic appointee from the previous administration however as peterson points out quote, innumerable removals were made for political reasons certain departments such as the treasury and especially the post office department saw extensive turnover postmaster general granger replaced seventeen hundred postmasters within six months trying to appease the various factions of the whig party with patronage would ultimately prove to be a gordian knot that harrison could not cut within his first month in office and it would be partially responsible for his rift with henry clay even before harrison took office clay sought to exert his control over the cabinet appointments in particular the treasury department post which clay wanted for his friend john m clayton of delaware though the man that harrison decided on thomas ewing was a clay supporter along with incoming secretary of war john bell and postmaster general granger ultimately the only person appointed to the cabinet who had strong ties to clay was john j crittenden who was appointed as attorney general when clayton lost out on the treasury post clay tried to use his influence to get clayton in as secretary of the navy but harrison had already decided on george badger of north carolina clay went to see harrison and apparently the meeting got rather heated before harrison ended it by saying quote, mr clay you forget that i am the president the situation would get no better after the inauguration when clay was in town for the short session of the senate to confirm harrison's appointees not only would Clay again be shut out in key appointments such as the collectorship of the Port of New York, but it seemed that Harrison wasn't listening to Clay's advice to call a special session. In fact, he was listening, and reminded Clay by letter that, though he valued his advice, there were others that he had to consult with before making a final decision. He went so far as to tell Clay that he was, quote, too impetuous, and that he would prefer if they could communicate via letter from now on. He didn't even want Clay around the White House unless summoned. With this insult, Clay went off in a huff back to Ashland to wait and see whether he'd be coming back to Washington for a special session or not. 
Harrison not only struggled with external forces when it came to appointments, but even his cabinet could pose a problem at times. During one meeting, they were discussing the post of Governor of the Iowa Territory. Harrison wanted his former aide-de-camp and Private Secretary John Chambers for the post, but the cabinet had decided upon James Wilson of New Hampshire. Harrison finally gave Webster a piece of paper and asked him to read it. Harrison had written, quote, William Henry Harrison, President of the United States. And once Webster was done reading, Harrison said, quote, William Henry Harrison, President of the United States, tells you, gentlemen, that by John Chambers shall be governor of Iowa. That ended the conversation. It wasn't all business and showdowns for Harrison in his first days in office. Harrison did enjoy welcoming friends to the White House in a similar fashion as he had at his home back in North Bend, no matter if the visit was planned or unexpected. In the mornings, he operated on the same schedule as he had at home, rising with the dawn and walking around the grounds before having breakfast and hitting the streets to shop for food at the local markets. He attended church twice on Sundays, going to an Episcopal church in the morning and Presbyterian church in the evening. He was also able to host a few dinners in the first few weeks after taking office, though a Harrison biographer asserted that he chose as dinner guests those he, quote, knew wouldn't pester him for government jobs. All in all, it seems like he was adjusting to his new role quite well. On the afternoon of Friday, March 26th, Harrison had a physician, Dr. Thomas Miller, called for in order to, quote, confer with him respecting some of the peculiarities of his constitution. Harrison had been suffering for a few days from a slight ailment and, quote, being always his own physician in slight attacks, had been taking, quote, medicine as well as, quote, dieting himself and believed he would soon be well again. After Harrison gave the doctor his medical history, Dr. Miller, quote, advised that he should avoid all excitement, remain quiet the next morning in bed, and intermit his official business which he promised to do. Naturally, when Miller called again at 8 p.m. that evening, he, quote, found Harrison in his parlor with several of his old military friends. Imagine that, someone not following doctor's orders. That never happens. Harrison told Miller, quote, that he felt much better than he had done for some days, that he thought he would have a good night and be well by the morning. He was cheerful and joined in the conversation. I don't think I'll be spoiling too much if I say that we're going to leave off here and that our last episode of the Harrison Biography series will be entitled The Death of a President and will come out on the 176th anniversary of Harrison's death. There is much to talk about with the illness that led to his death and how his death has been approached historically. Before that episode, though, we'll have an episode entitled Presidents on Harrison, where we'll discuss how other presidents, both preceding and succeeding Harrison, felt about the ninth person to hold the office. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact me via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Source notes and past episodes can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. And past episodes can also be found on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. If you've missed any episodes of the Harrison Biography series and want to get caught back up, I've made a guide for the series on the blog. Just look at the top for Harrison Biography series. Finally, I wanted to note that the Harrison Podcast is no longer a one-person endeavor, and this episode could not have come together without the able audio editing assistance of Andrew Foncook. Should you, like me, need his editing assistance for your audio projects, his email is andrew at fancook, that's P-F-A-N-N, 
K-U-C-H-E dot com. As always, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care, friends.